0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. To subscribe, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
1: Do you believe that someone out of the past
0: can
2: enter and Take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past,
0: but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with...
1: Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias.
0: Our producer Genevieve Kosky uh, just doesn't seem to be around. I mean, we haven't seen her in a while, but it's weird we can still hear her breathing. Eh, it probably doesn't mean anything. Anyway, on our next two episodes, we're discussing The Defective Detective, a new Terry Gilliam film that's been 40 years in the making. The script, written by the author of The Fisher King, dates back to the 1980s, when the two men collaborated on a story about a private eye trying to track down a girl who seems to have disappeared into a fantasy world. With his film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote finally completed, Gilliam turned to another of his lost projects and brought it back into production, again starring Adam Driver in the lead role- Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, Tasha, wait, what? We figured this was a good opportunity to pair the film with Gilliam's classic Brazil, which is also about a man who disappears into a fantasy world, although in a different kind of way. Brazil is one of my all-time whoa, favorite t-tasha, films, Tasha, so... Tasha,
1: Tasha, hold up. This isn't the pairing we agreed on doing. What are you talking about? Well, when we were planning this week's pairing, we didn't talk about Gilliam at all. These aren't films we had on this week's docket.
0: Scott, are you feeling okay? You you look a little pale.
1: I mean, I remember there being news back around 2011 or so about Gilliam reviving the defective detective, but I haven't heard anything about him completing it.
0: Scott, Scott, these are the films we talked about doing this week. Keith and I came here prepared to talk about them, right, Keith? Scott, uh, don't you
3: remember? You said you thought Gilliam's Baron Munchausen would be a better pairing because of parallels with young girls as
1: protagonists. No, I didn't. At least, I, I don't think I did. I, I don't remember any of this. We,
3: we saw the defective detective together, Scott, at the music box. This isn't ringing a bell. Well, what happened to doing
1: The Invisible Man?
0: What, the 1933 Claude Rains film? The whole point of the show is pairing a new movie with an old one.
1: Right, there's a new Invisible Man out. Huh?
0: I haven't heard anything about that.
1: I think I'm losing my mind. I need to go lie down. Excuse me.
0: Okay, Keith, I think he's gone. <laughs> it felt
3: like that worked. Uh, it seemed like it. Uh, tell me again, why, why are we making Scott doubt his sanity? Are we trying to steal his inheritance or his cat or muscle him out of the show and take his share of the Patreon money or, or what?
0: No, no, this is just revenge for his endless attempts to make me feel like I'm crazy for the things I like or don't like.
1: Okay, you guys, I've looked it up on Slack, and we definitely said we are discussing gaslighting movies this week. I've got the screenshots right here. Ah,
0: curses. The slightest shred of actual tangible evidence. The enemy of gaslighters everywhere. All right, smart guy, you win. Since you know what films we're actually doing this week, why don't you explain them to the audience?
1: Oh, thank God. The newest version of The Invisible Man, written and directed by Saw writer and upgrade director Lee Wannell, comes with a modern twist. It's still about a tragic inventor who's possibly losing his mind, but now the focus is on the woman he's targeting in an attempt to make her seem crazy as well. Elizabeth Moss stars as Cecilia, a woman who escapes her controlling, abusive husband Adrian, but then finds that thanks to his high-tech invisibility suit, he's stalking her and no one believes her. The dynamic of a husband pushing his wife toward mental illness for personal gain reminded us of the 1944 George Cougar classic, Gaslight, where Ingrid Bergman plays a woman whose husband mounts a disinformation campaign against her for insidious purposes. These are two films about manipulative, villainous husbands and wives trying to prove reality is real. In our latest Next Picture Show pairing, which I knew was right all along, Tasha, you never really had me going on this one.
0: (laughs) Go to fold me. So this week we'll talk about Gaslight and how its stagy structure gives the audience a clear rooting interest, making the question not who's losing their mind, but what's really behind the mind games. Then next week we'll bring in The Invisible Man and look at how a similar dynamic plays out in a much more action-oriented genre. Unless we do dig up those Gilliam movies. Maybe they're hidden up in the attic? I could swear I hear something moving around up there.
2: It was written two days before she was murdered.
0: Where did you find that?
2: In this score. She must have left it here. It's written by somebody called Sergius Bauer. Give it to me. He said I wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. You're not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh. wonderful. And you thought I was being cool to oh. you. <laughs> Keeping no, people away from <laughs> making you a prisoner. <laughs> oh, you're the kindest man in the world. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry.
0: About half an hour into George Cougar's 1944 drama Gaslight, a newly hired maid, played by Angela Lansbury, tries to figure out what's going on with her employer Paula, played by Ingrid Bergman. What's the matter with a mistress, she grouses to the household cook. She don't look ill to me, is she? I don't know, snaps the cook, played by Barbara Everest. Not as I can see, but the master keeps telling her she is. Everest's distrustful, acerbic tone serves as an early warning for the audience. She knows something's wrong with the master, and she knows that what she sees with her own eyes doesn't match what he says is going on. She's describing a form of psychological abuse that became known as gaslighting because of this film and because of its predecessors, the 1940 British film version and the 1938 Patrick Hamilton play that inspired both movies. In the story, nefarious piano player Gregory Anton, played with a slimy sort of suave kindness by Charles Boyer, keeps telling his new wife Paula that something's wrong with her. She keeps forgetting things, he claims, and losing things, and contradicting herself. When items go missing or change around the house, he tells her she lost them or moved them. He carefully alternates between kindly patronizing her and speaking sternly, supporting her and then mocking her, so she never knows what to expect and can't find any form of confidence it's clear to the audience that he's trying on purpose to make her think she's lost her mind. And the background information, delivered by police detective Brian Cameron, played by Joseph Cotton, and nosy, bloodthirsty neighbor Miss Thwaites, played by Mae Whitty, will make his reasons clear to most viewers fairly early on. Much like Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes from a few years earlier, Gaslight gives the audience more information than the leading lady has, and then creates tension out of her confusion and self-doubt. The main question here isn't just why these leads are being lied to, it's whether they're going to figure out the lies in time. Gaslight was an interesting departure for director George Cukor, whose filmography from the time was packed with memorable films with strong female leads. He was fired off Gone with the Wind over clashes with producer David O. Selznick, and he briefly took up directing duties on The Wizard of Oz as one of the five men who passed through the job of being in charge of that film. But more notably, he was known for the 1933 Little Women, and for films like Sylvia Scarlett, about a heroine who dresses like a boy to protect her father, and The Philadelphia Story, one of Katherine Hepburn's strongest classics, and The Women, the Norman Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell classic. And after Gaslight, he went on to direct more women-centric classics like Adam's Rib, A Star is Born, and My Fair Lady. Gaslight, featuring a timid, approval-seeking woman who's easily manipulated by a confident schemer, didn't particularly seem to fit the pattern. It also didn't fit the pattern for Bergman, who reportedly had her doubts about playing such a meek and weak-willed character. What united both Cooker and Bergman, though, was their sympathy for Paula, who could easily become a pathetic victim in this story, and instead is seen struggling in every scene to resist the traumas that came along before she met Gregory, and then to resist the traumas he's piling up on top of her. Gaslight is a remarkable story about a woman being told by society, conventional wisdom, and her own heart that she needs to trust and obey her husband, even as her senses are telling her that he's wrong. Boyer doesn't make anything easy for her either. He's smooth and insinuating, switching on a dime from comforting to menacing, and a lot of the terror in Gaslight comes from the audience joining Paula and having no idea what he's going to do next. By the final act of the film, we know he's a cold, intelligent murderer, and that he's capable of just about anything. But as it turns out, Polly is a cougar heroine after all. And in spite of all her seeming fragility, she's capable of some surprises herself.
2: Be quick, Paula. Get me the knife. Cut me free. Would you get it, Paula? Would you get it for me? Yes, I'll get it. I'll get it for you. Hurry, Paula. There's no knife here. Yes, I put it there. Look I for don't it. see any knife. I put it there tonight. No, it isn't here. You must have dreamed you put it there. Are you suggesting that this is a knife I hold in my hand? Have you gone mad, my husband? Or is it I who am mad? Yes, of course, that's it. I am mad. I'm always losing things and hiding things and I can never find them. I don't know where I put them. That was a knife, wasn't it? And I have lost it. I must look for it. Mustn't I? If I don't find it, you'll put me in the madhouse. Where could it be now? Perhaps it's behind this picture. Yes, it must be here. No. No, where shall I look now? Perhaps I put it over here. Yes, I must have done that. My brooch. The brooch I lost at the tower. I found it at last, you see, but it doesn't help you, does it? And I'm trying to help you, aren't I? trying to help you to escape. How can a mad woman help her husband to escape? But you're not mad. Yes, I am mad, as my mother was mad. No,
0: Paula. That wasn't true. Help me. So, Scott, was this your first time with Gaslight? Do I remember that correctly?
1: Film? What's a film? Um, (laughs) uh, Sorry. (laughs) There's going to be some gaslighting jokes on this podcast. Um, This was not my first time with this movie. I... In my capacity as a freelancer for other publications such as the New York Times, I will write these pre-obit recommendation lists. In anticipation of older folks passing away, such, oh, as, is, as, such is, as Angela Lansbury, is George
0: Cooker like uh, no, 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 no. edging Ange- slowly Ange- this, is near a- an- this, is,
1: this was part of the Angela Lansbury collection. Who uh, we, so we should she, say
3: it's still it's still with us, alive, and so, still, so she's still alive. I don't,
1: I don't want I I to make you all convinced that she's not alive, because <laughs> that would also be gaslighting. So that was my first encounter with gaslight, though I certainly was aware of its reputation as being kind of it's sort of on the side of noir. You know, it's like one of those movies that doesn't necessarily belong in that tradition but also seems to operate it within it as well um so it's kind of it it is and isn't a noir uh and certainly and that's pretty much my favorite genre so that drew me to it but i I watched it for the the lansbury list and then i watched it again here so it's a pretty rapid succession the lansbury i wrote up a couple years ago and she's still kicking but i really responded strongly to this movie it is um you know it's a very uh Difficult premise to sell in a way because Paula is being lied to so outrageously you have to be convinced that she is as vulnerable as she is, that you have to go on that journey with her to where she is going to believe every lie this person tells her. And I think the film persuades you of that, and I think Ir- Ingrid Bergman persuades you of that. And it's really what's really funny to me about your keynote is when you talked about Bergman's own trepidation about taking the role, because watching her in this movie reminded me so much of her daughter in Blue Velvet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. That, that level of just... Being utterly defeated and manipulated by this powerful, diabolical man. And uh, and I just, there's so, it was so eerie, <laughs> the connection between those two. But uh, no, I, I'm a fan of this movie. I think she's terrific. I think Charles Boyer is quite smooth, and insinuating, and scary. And I really like Joseph Cotton. because he's just got a nice. Solid premise. He's the guy that comes in and just is solid. And of course, Angela Lansbury. This is like a glimpse of her, or what she'd do later in *Manchurian Candidate*, of, of Angela Lansbury as as a villain. You know, <laughs> I, mean, she's, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think she's motivated more by uh, self interest. And and she's uh, a
3: woman of questionable character. She
1: is. She is. And she's got the accent and everything. Yeah, See, yeah. She
0: she dresses in a flashy way with a dress with a pattern on it. <laughs> I know. Uh, just scandalous, Nin- harlot
3: Nineteen years old at the time, uh, I believe, when
0: she made this movie. And no acting experience whatsoever. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, she was apparently uh, working as a department store counter girl when she was hired. And (laughs) there's a story, and as with so many of these stories, it comes from INBB trivia, so who knows if it's true. But supposedly uh, she was making $17, I think it was $17 a week, and... uh, when she said that she was leaving uh, her boss offered to match whatever she was going to get at the new job and mm. she said it's going to be $500 a week I'm <laughs> going to go work in the movies
3: um, Shelley Duvall was also working in a department store when she was discovered too so. yeah I
0: mean it was a very it was one of the few apart from like teaching and, mm. and nursing it was one of the very few jobs uh, available to like young unmarried women mm. and it was very socially acceptable for young unmarried women sure
1: yeah so, and I, think, I, I think you're also kind of in a position where you're acting in a way you're kind of presenting people with materials you're under good light and you have makeup on and it's kind of like you're already sort of auditioning unofficially just by doing the job you know
0: sure and they wanted women with you know some kind of glamour to them and outgoing charismatic personalities so of course they're going to run into you know people in hollywood like literally going to department stores looking for ingenues that's not important keith what's your experience with this movie um first time i saw it, it was today actually Are, you were the one that was the first, yeah, time. Yeah, first time i gaslighted yeah, yeah. myself uh,
3: i've seen uh, a bunch of Cooker movies uh although i realized some of his early ones I've, I've never seen but i've seen a lot of stuff from this sort of middle period but not this one and I'm, I've, I've actually was really happy we chose this because I've, I've been looking for an excuse to watch it and, yeah. and you know when you're in our field you know you kind of have to find a professional reason to watch things sometimes so uh this was a Uh, Treat to get to go see or watch, rather. But yeah, I thought it was really good. And to to peg off of what Scott was saying, you know, I I think you need a couple of things that you need an Ingrid Bergman (laughs) to sell this movie. Uh, And boy, does she. I mean, it is it is an unnerving performance. I mean, you uh, really are seeing, you really get sense. She's at the brink of cracking and it's on her face and it's on her expressions. And I think the other thing is you need the contrast because at the beginning, she's just very glamorous and it's, it's, there's a real kind of erotic heat to her interactions with Charles uh, Boyer. I mean, there's, she's really clearly sexually attracted to him and the marriage is rushed, which is sort of, you know, code for that as well, you know, and, and, uh, I think that deepens the sense that she's under his spell and it deepens the betrayal and it kind of adds like sort of a, uh, you know, without getting too S&M about it, it kind of gives like a dominant submissive uh, element to their relationship that kind of makes it make sense in a way that that she could be cowed into, into, into this behavior.
1: And one thing, uh, just, I, before I don't want to jump on ahead of you here, Tasha, because I, I want to hear what you think of the movie, but I, I think it's important maybe contextually to point out that they are moving back into this home where she used to live with her, sure, with her aunt, and that he is looking for this jewel, right? Right. Um. And so, and, and and just that specific act kind of sends the movie on its way of just taking her back to this place where suddenly she's vulnerable in a way that mm-hmm. she she wasn't before. Like she had she had worked through a lot of this trauma uh, by being away from it, and for for him the the first biggest step to putting her in that psychic space is to put her in this haunted space. Yeah, right? it's,
3: it's kind of like Rebecca in reverse where, where she's kind of unmoored by being put in a familiar environment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, what, what do you think, Tasha?
0: Oh, I love this movie. I don't, I couldn't tell you when I first encountered it. It's been a fairly long time, but I think I might have caught it just when I was in the process of catching up on noir in general. And of course, I was curious about the the gaslighting phenomenon. Like whenever you have a a specific place you can point to for an entire concept coming into being coming into the world it's just <laughs> yeah. you know it's or when when you can point to a film that invented a trope or that invented an expression or like invented a form you always want to watch it cuz you're just curious but i like i think I think this is, this film is really well constructed. I mean, it has that feeling of a stage play, you know, your your mouse trap like stage play that's really tight and very well worked and very heavily in the dialogue even more so than in the locations or the, the movements. It's in the dialogue and in the performances. But I think Kukor opens it up in some reasonably interesting ways, like actually takes a story that you could kind of understand all taking place on, on one set, mm-hmm. if it was divided up into uh, rooms, and breaks it out and, and puts it in the world. In a way that becomes really important, like the, a lot of the critical response to this uh, this film was based around the performances, but a lot of the rest of it was based around the set decoration, uh, the the German expressionist look to it, the the claustrophobic feeling of it, the way the set decorator, who was a German refugee, like fills all of these rooms with clutter just in order to make them weigh heavily on her, mm-hmm. and then Cougar takes it outside into these like big sunny areas where it <laughs> may. may Woody is yelling at the birds. Oh, my God. I, God I, she's she's like a, a Mary Poppins-esque bird feeder, except instead of being like a sweet old lady that you sing uh, plaintive songs about, she's yelling like, hey, pigeons, come over here, eat food. All right, pigeons, <laughs> leave. More food tomorrow. She's just delightful, I yeah. think. But yeah, like every part of this, the performances are really great. I think the direction is is pretty interesting. Cooker was not often a man known for his really interesting direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and watching this, I'm not sure why. But just fundamentally, like Bergman's performance and Boyer's performance, uh, they're just. I think they're both just really well tuned. It is so easy to see how she would fall for what he's doing because the way he slips back and forth on a dime between these like very gentle insinuating nags. Like I mm-hmm. I seriously considered making the intro about a pickup artist lore because it's just it's like a manual of like make her uncomfortable neg her like put her down make her uncertain of herself force intimacies that she's not ready for push her around physically commander it's just like it's all pickup artist stuff and it's tremendously uncomfortable but every time she's you upset up
3: artistry sounds so unsavory tasha
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean it hasn't worked for me so i, I mean I, it can't be that good The way he seems to anticipate what she's feeling and just immediately move around into the correct position to throw her most off base, you know, whether that's yelling at her, inviting her out to a lovely night on the Mm -hmm. town, letting her celebrate and then like turning around and shutting her down, gently comforting her embarrassing her in front of the maid and then gently telling her that she's crazy for thinking the maid doesn't like her it just it goes on yeah. and on it's such a well spun up series of tensions and I, I find it just delicious
1: yeah what you're talking about there just the way he manipulates her is, is fascinating Like the, the traps that he sets for her I mean, that one you mentioned of just offering this evening out and she's so Excited, you know. She's like she, you know, she's just suffocating in this house and just does not is hasn't been anywhere and, and is having to live with whatever memories that she has to live with in this, you know, unhappiness and depression that's sort of just starting to just overwhelm her. He get, throws her this lifeline by offering this wonderful night where the, the romantic evening out and then just to pull that rug out and then and then the, you get know, a scene later that scene later where they're actually out in public. And enjoying a performance and uh his watch suddenly goes missing and it ends up in her purse somehow and it's just like that's rough and she can't you know i mean where's and then she just think about an incident like that like what she really has to consider that she's going mad i mean that that she's doing things that she can't remember in this man she's chosen to trust and so if you you if you trust somebody who's completely who's lying to you they can do all kinds of things to, to mess with your head.
0: It's going to be harder than than anything to get around just the simple, you're remembering things wrong. Well, all right, what's the proof that I'm remembering things right? My memory? If there's no way of, of keeping track, if there's no evidence, like physical evidence of what you did or said in the past, having somebody just consistently telling you that's not the way it happened well, it can really make you feel like you're crazy.
3: Well, it's such a common experience, too. I mean, pe- memory is unreliable. You remember things differently than I do, even if we were at the same place. And, But, you know, to have that constantly questioned, it sort of chips away at your confidence, and pretty quickly, too, I would imagine.
0: And, I mean, from the very first time we see her, like, in shock after her aunt's murder, coming down to the the coach and uh, with the neighbors peering in on her like she just she seems like a woman who's threatened by the world she Mm -hmm. seems like a woman who was at a very young age had safety and security and and comfort and you know was was close to fame and somebody who cared about her and had it all taken away unpredictably in a horrible way you know she's a trauma victim she's processing her trauma and the solution to it turns out to be a source of more trauma. I mean, it's it really is just all a, a great big trap.
1: I mean, does it become personal for you as well as a woman to have to understand that these types of people exist? This type of behavior is associated with men, right? I mean, I mean, does it hit you on a, on a personal level? Of, of, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't necessarily need to.
0: Please stand hear... in for all
1: women tonight, Tasha.
0: Oh. I mean, no, that's not what I mean. I just,
1: I mean, I'm just like, I'm just like. Do you feel like this film resonates differently? Would would resonate differently with you than with with me, for example? I mean, I mean,
0: I can't, I can't you tell you can't how it resonates that, with but you. But
1: it's a, I'm rambling. But you know what I'm saying.
0: Bringing in the whole pickup artist uh, thing is sort of where it hits personally for me. Like the pickup artist movement. I mean, people have basically literally written books about how to step-by-step step do everything that we see in this movie in order to get women who don't know you and don't like you to sleep with you. Mm. Um, so like, yeah, I'm very aware that this is like a system specifically designed for manipulating insecure women. I'm well aware that this is like designed as a way to break down other people's psychological barriers. That's passed from man to man in an attempt to, <laughs> to get sex without giving anything whatsoever in return. But where it feels personal, I think, is that it's it's a re- it's a retribution story. You know, it's a, a justice story. It's a a very hard one, but very satisfying, cathartic yeah. justice yeah. story in the end. There's a viciousness to that ending that's just very satisfying after everything that you've you've seen and gone through. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to speak on behalf of like women as to whether it's more satisfying for a woman than a man. I think anybody with empathy is going to watch this film and and just feel like a play. It, like the little turning of the knife, so to speak, at the end.
1: Oh, that's that's so good. And but I guess maybe I'm thinking like this is a film that we look to as the genesis of this term, mm-hmm. you know. But it's certainly not the genesis of this phenomenon. Oh, was, certainly not. So I mean, I guess maybe that's the kind of the point I'm, I'm stumbling around is like, is that this story was able to kind of identify some very specific phenomenon that we that is common, and then in in, in in this phrase, the idea of gaslighting. As a terminology has been very recent. I mean, it's been its common usage is very recent, which is also interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly it's common usage, but it was. I mean, from everything I've read, uh, it it became. A sl- like a common slang term in the 1940s for a while mm. uh, because of this film like it was the film was popular enough and was seen enough uh, that people would say like stop gaslighting me uh, back in the day I'll tell you what feels in a way almost more personal than the existence of gaslighting and, and the idea of uh, men manipulating women simply by appearing more confident and that's the interplay between Paula and the Angela Lansbury character the way he Sets the two of them up against each other to a a degree where there's just no winning for Paula. Like, Mm. there's this kind of like catty person in her life that she wants to be kind to, but being kind to is the wrong response. If she's imperious and bossy towards her, that's the wrong response. If she ignores her, that's the wrong response. There is essentially a woman around her who is younger and arguably prettier and who her husband is saying all of these complimentary things to while at the same time like like gently nagging Paula. And that feeling of kind of like setting women against each other in order to prevent the basic kind of like friendship bonding that would give her like some kind of rock to stand on um, is just something it's it's pretty common to female friendships this this idea that you can't be friends without competition that there's got to be some kind of like catty or bitchy element to it where you're you're perpetually in competition for men and it's it feels like just like the idea of, of sisterhood friendships that don't have to have that element have really only entered the popular culture in a major way over the last couple of decades. So going back to this period and specifically seeing how this one person like, like engineers and manipulates that situation just like reminds me of a lot of things that I've seen happen in the culture over the past several decades.
1: Well, and class plays such a role too, because I mean he's, he's basically he's exerting power in different ways to these two women, to Paula and to the Angela Lansbury character named
3: Nancy.
0: Nancy. 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 That's true. She does say it several times. Uh, yeah. Uh, Na-
1: Paula and Nancy. I mean, but Nancy is in a position where he is called master, <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, like, what power do you have in that relationship? And so he can kind of, he has the ability to exploit that for whatever he wants to do what, is the, the what, what could she what makes, could she do in that situation
3: the scene where he makes the cook kiss the bible to swear to swear she's telling the truth is such a it's such a telling moment of, of the power dynamic between classes it's, 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 i mean this is set in the, the 19th century um but you know even it persisted i'm sure it will be recognizable uh even in 1944
1: mm-hmm what a, what a uh, cool device—the gaslight in this movie, right? We haven't talked about that. About mm-hmm. about the fact that, uh, again, to give a little context for our listeners, I mean that when Gregory is up in the attic looking for this jewel among, in this huge you know, mess of an attic, she hears him a little bit, but she also the gas that is powering her, her light starts to dim. There, the lights in the, in her room. They dim mysteriously because that gas is being uh, used elsewhere in the in the home, mm-hmm. and so and uh, and so. But she, of course, feels like she's being like it's a haunting almost, right? <laughs> she's hearing all she's hearing is creaky noises and dimming lights, dimming lights and, and, and it's yeah. like and suddenly the her life shadows is a horror show, and so it's it's such an interesting and obviously period specific touch to have this be an important narrative device.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's like watching a movie like phone booth it's heavily yeah. predicated on the accessibility and and commonality of phone booths like there's just not really a a good functional like technological equivalent today where like you go upstairs and turn flip on the lights and all the lights down on the uh, the the ground floor like suddenly dim and stay dim because you're using too much electricity upstairs you know you like you might blow a fuse but that's a pretty tangible and like specific noticeable outcome uh, that, you, you have to go like physically deal with you you can't blame it on your uh, your own senses and not trusting your own senses I think
3: it only worked now if you had a character who was constantly showering and then the, the water pressure changed
0: <laughs> or but, the uh, amount of hot water
3: that would that, yeah that would that would that would take some doing to some narrative doing to get that uh make that make sense
0: especially uh, the the idea that like Gregory goes upstairs and showers before he looks for the gems mm-hmm. every night
3: yeah no I don't think it works
0: uh, speaking of Gregory upstairs looking for the gems just the the whole mechanic of like oh oh, darling, on your behalf, we're going to move everything up to a place where you never have to look at it. Mm -hmm. We're going to, like (laughs) metaphorically speaking, we're going to hide all this stuff in the attic and never look at it or think about it again. Uh, It's just like a great psychological metaphor uh, that I find pretty hilarious. But as a mechanic for I want to isolate all of this stuff so I can go through it personally – we're going to put this in terms of like how we can benefit you. It's just, it's one of his, one of his neat little manipulations.
1: Mm-hmm. What a strange scheme to, to look for this stuff because he's going outside and going in through climbing the, across the roof, climbing across the roof and going in through a skylight. I mean, this is a complicated operation yeah. to, uh, Those
3: jewels are very valuable though. Scott, so
1: they are, it
3: takes him a while to find it too. Yeah. Hiding Sheesh. in plain sight.
1: Yeah, a man, very purloined a, letter. Oh man, the letter. Yeah, and that just the letter kind of gets things rolling, doesn't it? This like that's that's when he f- first kind of turns on her, right? That when he, they discover that, you know, suddenly this guy who's been romancing her shows this flash of psychosis and it's like that really kind of rocks her back on the he- her heels and you know, and maybe us on ours a little bit. Yeah,
3: I don't want to brag about how smart I am, but at that moment I thought something's up. <laughs>
1: Trouble in Paradise, Keith yeah. was saying.
0: And then the people who he was watching the film with said, "Oh no, Scott! I know, no, Keith, you're just imagining it. It's fine."
1: But I, th- I think though we should say that the uh, that uh, Miss Thwaites is the true villain of this piece.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, how so? I mean,
1: well, she's just? So, he, she is so. She's nosy. She's just like such a little like like um what's the what's the other word? I was but she for? ultimately contributes to the unmasking.
0: I mean, it's it's very important. Her her nosiness really, for instance, uh, gives Joseph Cotton's character a lot she does, of. But the she, she wants that to he
1: know needs. what's going on. You know, she does. It's not really like she's trying to protect this lovely woman that she met on the train. She just wants to know what's who's moving into this place and what's going on and what why do I why do I never see this person and and uh, you know then she can't she, obviously she doesn't know what the situation is but she cannot stop talking about what happened to this house to Ingrid, when she first meets Ingrid Bergman she drives Ingrid Bergman off the train. Uh, Nosy gonna...
0: old biddies are an immensely helpful tool in in mysteries and noir in pretty much anywhere where you need uh, clues investigate or dispersed and may Whitty's just adult so like. you look
1: at you you look at her as uh as a positive force for good in the film
0: well for instance she gave us all the very commonly used today slang word diggy biscuits which <laughs> i like i i was just having a delicious uh, lunch with diggy biscuits today and thinking what? to myself thank goodness for diggy biscuits. what
3: is that do we do it's we short digestive biscuits is a very common oh, type that's of cookie right. okay in in england and and you know, they don't really aid digestion. Uh, they are t- they are tasty, though. Are That's
1: they- where we got the phrase getting diggy with it. Yeah, absolutely. It is exactly, yeah. definitely. Okay.
0: So, I, I mean, as I was doing research for this, I, I just I kept coming up over and over against this wall of uh, George Croker as a women's director. Uh, he was gay. He was pretty well known to be gay. He was known as a director that female uh, actors were comfortable with. And whether that was because of of the fact that he was gay and was not going to try to sleep with them um, or because he just like had a way about him or because uh, as in some of the specific stories, uh, particularly with um, Vivian Lee on Gone with the Wind, he honestly cared about the inner lives of women characters in a way that for instance, Victor Fleming came in afterwards and absolutely did not care about uh, Scarlett's inner life and thought she was a cold and terrible character and just wanted her played in as like a hammy villain. So I get the impression that like all of these things might well be true for whatever reason, a phenomenal percentage of his movies are very centered around uh, like very prominent female characters, which I won't say it was uncommon at the time. Um, this was the 40s. There are were, there were a lot of, of like really strong and outstanding, interesting female characters in the 1940s, but an awful lot of them fell into like femme fatale style roles or, uh, you know, kind of like prizes to be won. And his filmography with women is just really interesting and varied. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious whether, like, how this fits into his filmography for you. What do you think about him as a director in general?
1: I mean, the, all these films that you mentioned are so extraordinary. I mean, the Philadelphia Story Adams, rib, the women... Star is born, My Fair Lady. These are good movies, and you know, I, th- I think you look at like if we isolate just *Adam's Rib*, *The Philadelphia Story*, which are two comedies around Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn is also, is I think, who we would point to of that period of being a modern progressive woman, mm-hmm. who has a very, literally quite a unique voice, you know, and intelligence and assertiveness that made her sort of stand apart from other actresses of the time. In a film like *Adam's Rib*. That's a film that's entirely about a woman who is fighting to be on equal footing, both in a courtroom and in in her marriage with her husband. And uh, I mean, that, all that stuff is important. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that advocacy for women, that interest in women's interior lives, all that stuff makes a lot of sense to me in terms of connecting films that are very different in terms of genre and style, but all kind of reflect the sensibility and like the the taste and the interest of the director
3: yeah i think i think just bergman the emphasis on bergman's psyche and her performance and her perilous state and how you know the ways that could reflect the situation a lot of what married women found themselves in, not not in you know in this extreme murderous case but in in you know trapped in situations that they couldn't find get find their way out of i think that's an extension of, of some of the other things that he did
0: I I really tried to find more sort of, like, interviews with him, more – I really wanted, uh, like, cases of him kind of, like, stating his intentions, like, as a director, as a a storyteller, because he returned to this well so often. And about all I found as far as uh, Gaslight was concerned was just him holding up Bergman, like, defending the casting of Bergman by pretty much saying – this story is more interesting with a really strong woman in this role. That Let, like let's see what happens if we take a really strong woman and break her down as opposed to having her be uh, like a meek and cowardly the entire time. But like, I would, I would love to at this point, read more about his interaction with film, about his interaction um, with his, his stars, particularly his female stars. He just seems like a, not just a distinctive director, like I was aware of his track record, but I never really put those pieces together. There was another thing that I found interesting uh, doing research in this film. There was a critic in uh, 2006, Emmanuel Levy, wrote about how this film kind of like fits into what he described as a film cycle in the 1940s that can be described as don't trust your husband. Uh, He says it began with three Hitchcock films, Rebecca, Suspicion, and Shadow of a Doubt. It continued with Gaslight and Jane Eyre in 1944, Dragon's Wake in 1945, Notorious, The Spiral Staircase in 1946, uh, The Two Mrs. Carols in 1947, Sorry, Wrong Number, and Sleep, My Love in 1948. All these films use the noir visual vocabulary and share the same premise and narrative structure. The life of a rich, sheltered woman is threatened by an older, deranged man who is often her husband. In all of them, the house, usually a symbol of shared security in Hollywood movies, becomes a trap of terror. Hmm. <laughs> that's something else that i certainly wouldn't have noticed but as like a a nearly decade long run of of films sort of in the same shape and on the same subject about like exactly what you're talking about like trapped domesticity like the threat of domesticity i think it's a really interesting thread to pull on
1: i mean it's interesting how how this idea kind of swells up again in the culture and i think we'll kind of get into it when we get into the, the Invisible Man, because the Invisible Man sort of evokes a tradition of thrillers of in the '90s that were all about women dealing with domestic abuse, and being trapped in these sorts of marriages, things like sleeping with the enemy and that kind of thing. Like it's kind of a throwback to those types of films. So I think it, I think it, it almost be, it becomes something in the air. I mean, it's really hard to generalize what that is. You know, I mean, I, you know, other than the usual you know, post-war malaise or whatever that must have been sweeping the country. Um, it's
3: but It's a little pre-war, but yeah, I know what you mean. Well, some that. of it's pre-war yeah,
1: and some of it isn't, I guess, yeah. but it's fascinating that that became like almost like a formula or, or maybe something that people were just unconsciously turning to of just like assessing the institution of marriage at that particular point in time. I mean, and, you know, and that's an issue with if, even in a comedy like Adam's Rib, there's a f- conflict there about what, you know, what is marriage at this point? you know and where and what is the role of a woman in a marriage is she an equal partner and what does that mean and if she's not an equal partner what does that say about the man in her life and what and is is he you know cruel and diabolical is he wielding power over her you know we look at somebody like Spencer Tracy and, and are assured that he's not a demon, but some of those tensions are still there.
0: I can't help but wonder if it had anything to do with uh, women getting the vote in 1920. This this is basically a generation after that. So the generation that grew up knowing that women would have the vote starting to potentially question other things about the way women were treated in society, like the rights that they had and, and didn't have, the roles that they had and didn't have. And it seems like, I mean certainly like during the war women took on roles that they'd never taken on before and and came to an independence that, that they never had before and then had to deal with with men coming back and with them losing a lot of the power that they'd gained. But this is a movement that spans, as Keith points out, you know, before and after the war. So it's not that simple. It may just have been kind of a thread going on in the culture at the time. Well,
3: I think also something not only reson, you know, something that not only resonates with the culture, but also becomes a hit. Then there's sort of a, a move to repeat that, and then that perhaps resonates and inspires more movies until eventually, you know, runs out of steam. I mean, you can see that in in the not unrelated genre of like um, sort of the Fatal Attraction inspired thrillers from from the '80s and early '90s, where you know it's it's it that's a an effective movie followed by some other effective movies that until eventually you just kind of get you know. Uh, things like The Crush and things like that. it would get very silly
0: with it. I think it's also just interesting that I mean, we we talked about, and Scott specifically talked about how these movies uh, are are basically all using the language of noir, the the visual threat and the system of of light and shadows and the imagery of of good and evil, light and dark uh, that that noir used, and they're using some of the same tools, particularly in German expressionistic lighting design, set design, production design, but they're directly against like some of the fundamental ideas of noir is like there's a strong central female character, but she's usually an evil manipulator. She's usually gaslighting the the male lead in yeah. these films. She's telling him lies in order to manipulate him for a specific purpose. These films feel like, a direct response to that, like a flipping the script kind of thing, where you have instead of like the bad girl who comes along and and throws the man out of his comfortable rut, you have the good girl who is trying to fit into her comfortable rut and can't because there's a, a threat that she can't that she can't handle a domestic threat that's that's part of the trappings of being a good girl, and it's like. It's almost like anti-noir in a way, uh, but using a lot of the same visual thread and visual threat that noir has.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, the visual thing is important because it's like, because if you are not doing anything cinematically here, it's very much a stage play because so much of it takes place in this house. So you have to find ways to bring that space to life and to give it its own flavor and character and menace and, and make it feel suffocating and dark. And um, so in a way that kind of the noir genre almost is a solution rather than an intent, You know, going out to work in that style. That style is a solution to the problem of having to make this film as effective as possible, you know, to make bring the story, the, the tension and nerve that it needs. Some of the staging in this
3: is pretty remarkable, the compositions
1: between the characters. There's this
3: one scene where it looks like Boyer, is. it's basically composed as if you were strangling her. Uh, And even some of the motions are are kind of mimic that. And there's another one. There's another one where where she's walking up the stairs, and he's in the background, not entirely in focus, but it's like this kind of spectral presence. Like she just cannot get away from him. You know, he's he's a voice and he's a presence, and he's there in the background at all times. I mean, really, some smart visual choices and, and you know, using very limited space.
0: Well, we should wrap up. Any last thoughts on cast members we haven't mentioned or any other elements in the film that you want to address?
3: Um, I just love Joseph. I mean, I I love Joseph Cotton generally. I think he's great. But I also love he's in this film. He's part of that tradition of like, here's an American. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a lot of like universal horror films have that too. It's like this is set somewhere in Europe where most people have British accents, and here's an American for you for some reason.
1: Well, and that's, I mean that's the in that kind of he kind of fills you know the idea of the American as the. As a straight shooter. But right? is he
3: even playing mm-hmm. in American? It feels like he's kind of like an accent-blind... Oh, blind, I see. It's like an accent-blind no, cast. right. because right, he, works, he works
1: at Scotland Yard. Yeah, <laughs> he, he
0: not only works at Scotland Yard, he's been there for more than 10 years. Because sure. he was a detective 10 years ago on the, the Alice case. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with that over... I had so much attention in cinema gets paid to... Like, what What accent is Christian Bale wearing this mm-hmm. week? Like, can Kevin Costner actually pull off any kind of accent? Like, rather than analyzing their accents, I'm I'm perfectly fine with uh, accent-blind casting. I think the fact that nobody says, like, look, you ya, ya Yankee, like, why are you continuing uh, to pursue this case that we don't need to pursue? Like, nobody brings it up, and they probably would.
3: They do comment on, on Bergman's accent, though. Um, <laughs> it feels thicker here. I'm not even thick, but it feels like less... Uh, covered up then doesn't sound like Casablanca or, or other films that she did at the time too but it does it, it, like it, it, yeah. it,
0: it makes her feel I think a little more disconnected from London mm-hmm. it makes her feel a little more like somebody who potentially wouldn't fit in in this neighborhood like there's a bit of the exotic about her mm-hmm. which we get from that first shot with like oh, the neighbors all staring at the the survivor of the terrible murder but there's also just a feeling that you know maybe she's too foreign maybe she's too ethereal Maybe she's too, uh, you know, young and marked by tragedy. Any of these things are keeping her from the kinds of relationships that she <laughs> really needs in support during the uh, the antics that go on during the story. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, who wants to visit a haunted house anyway? I mean, she's moving into a haunted house. Uh, you know, everyone in the neighborhood feels that history there and probably wants no part of it except for, you know, our uh, our, our nosy neighbor. Excepted. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it seems like one of the things that's haunting her is herself, her own memories, her her own memories of uh, fragility and vulnerability, which do kind of literally come back to haunt her. We're going to wrap it up there. We'll have a lot more to say about Gaslight when we talk about it in conjunction with The Invisible Man next week. In the meantime, we're going to take a break and then we'll be back with feedback. <laughs> Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Uh, Keith, can you kick us off with a letter about Portrait of a Lady on Fire?
3: Absolutely. Terry in Minneapolis writes, I want to address two points that came up during the podcast. The simplest to address is the mystery of the women's gathering. This is a maritime community where among the common folk, the men will likely be fishermen and seafarers. The women will be alone for great stretches, and many of them will be widows due to the perilous nature of their husband's work. So this could explain the periodic meetings in music making. The meeting is evidently an opportunity for various forms of communal activity. Sophie visits a midwife. Eloise buys drugs. It makes perfect sense that Sophie would be the one who knows about this gathering. And you see the silhouettes of the three women climbing a hillside en route with Sophie at the front. Also, I couldn't disagree more with the idea that Heloise's character is a blank or cipher. We learn so much about her. She loves music, she can be very opinionated. In the film, she is vocal in certain matters of art and music. She is brimming with anger at her situation. When she sees an opportunity, she likes to assert herself. It is she that insists Marianne paint a second portrait. She conceives the idea of painting the abortion. Not only does she suggest it the night when Sophie is recovering, it's obvious that she had conceived the idea in the midwife's cottage because she insists that Marianne watch. She is also the one who suggests sexual experimentation involving a topically applied psychotropic herb. Bear in mind, this woman's world exploded just a few weeks before. She can be excused for being at this juncture a little inchoate. She is also less worldly, less independent, and less romantically experienced than Marianne. But this doesn't make her a cipher or poorly formed character. It just means that in some areas, her preferences aren't yet committed. Marianne is an introvert. Eloise is an extrovert. But they are equals. I can imagine, however, that a viewer who resonates more with one of these personality types would find the other character to pale by comparison.
0: That uh, last point really struck home with me. There are a lot of good points in this letter, uh, yeah. including some that we cut because it's a long letter. Among other things, Terry points to an article in Slate that breaks down what that song that the women on the beach are singing is about, like what the translation is, what the meaning of it is in context. Um, and there's a lot to delve into there. But the point in this letter that hit home most with me was uh, a viewer, <laughs> a viewer, her resonates with one of these personality types would find the other one would find the other one to pale by comparison. As an introvert, I think I did resonate with Marianne a lot more and I didn't see Eloise necessarily as an extrovert. I I think it takes her a while to get to a point of expressing her extroversion because of the situation she finds herself in. I guess I just wanted more from her. Like looking back on it with more distance, I could certainly see why she unfolds slowly and how we do come to discover more about her over the course of time. And we've gotten a couple of letters uh, telling me that I'm profoundly wrong about this. And I'm willing to (laughs) accept the fact that, that other people see it differently. I just, like, from the beginning, this this would just be a, a much different story if she, in the, like, first act or so that we see them together, she wasn't holding back so much of her personality.
1: I don't think she holds back. I think she's mad. I mean, she's just an angry. Yeah. She's very angry at this moment. And she hasn't held back in the sense that she refuses to pose for, for anyone. She's supposed to be doing something you know in preparation to get married and she's created this situation where the person hired to paint her has to do so behind her back because she won't do it Uh, and I mean and that takes a lot of courage and will on her part and it takes a lot for her to understand Marianne as as an ally and somebody who's ultimately going to support her I mean you know when Marianne gets to that point where she destroys the portrait that she made of Heloise, that's the signal. I mean, that's the signal that she can now kind of open herself up a little bit more and trust Marianne, and that relationship kind of goes to another level there. But I think that, um, you know, all the points Terry makes here are very strong <laughs> in claiming that I think Heloise is a, is a quite filled-out character, and done so, I think, in a in a economical way. Uh, you know, Celine Sciamma in this film is so... Um, so visually oriented it gives you so much with looks and gazes and tries not to do everything the dialogue and yet she's able to communicate all of this that and i think there's a lot of all the assertions here that terry make are supported by the text of the film um and a lot of it's done visually
0: i here's the thing i agree with all of it uh it <laughs> just doesn't Resonate as much for me. People refusing to express themselves in film, expressing themselves by refusing to express themselves, are always going to be, I think, a little less interesting to me than people who express themselves verbally. I don't necessarily want the character to like look into the camera and say, "Here is what I am feeling right now. Mm-hmm. I am angry for some very obvious reasons, which I will detail nonetheless." But I like. I don't know. I we compared it with uh, Campion's The Piano, and to me, like Holly Hunter's lack of verbal expression is totally matched by all of her physical expression, her facial expression, her gestures, the the places she goes, the way she plays the piano. Like You're never doubting what she feels. And to me, Heloise was more of an enigma.
3: I'm kind of with Terry, uh, but I know what you mean, that she's a tough read, to be sure. I kind of agree with everything you're saying in the sense that she is tough to get a beat on, but I never really thought that was a case of the character being underwritten or underdeveloped.
1: Yeah, I think she has to develop a certain level of trust before she reveals herself fully at that moment. But I think you get a lot of nice visual cues up till then just through looks. You know, and uh, this film has some pretty memorable looks, in my opinion. Maybe I'm just was
3: thinking of your cat, but she's very cat-like, you know? Just, just, <laughs> just kind of closed off and hostile until
1: you've proven yourself repeatedly that you can be trusted. And it's an interesting, uh, you know... It, <laughs> it is... until
0: you give her some psychotropic drugs, okay, which usually too. it's catnip. Yeah, 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 the the exactly. one other
1: film that Shyama made with the actress Adele Hanel was her first one called Water Lilies. And in both films, Hanel plays an object of desire. In Water Lilies, she's on the synchronized swimming team, and this girl is kind of watching her from the stands and wants to be part of the team because she's obsessed with her. But in both cases, both Water Lilies and Porter Lady on Fire, they both start as objects of interest and desire and who are mysterious in their way. And then later in the film, things open up and you get to know them a little bit more.
0: Well, we've talked a lot about the the latter half of the letter. Uh, I just want to shout out the observations in the former half of the letter uh, as far as what's going on with that gathering. Like, again, it feels so mysterious to me and, uh, like, I'm so torn in that place between – I don't want a movie to explain everything to me. I don't want to be condescended to. And I want to not be distracted while things are going on by wondering what's going on. Um, so like all of this information, I think, is uh, very cool information to have. It's it's some very smart observations. I vaguely wish I'd had them going in because huh. I loved that song. And I just like
1: to feel it, though. You just feel it. You watch a scene like that and you just kind of get swept up in the... Moment, you know, I this, get movie swept is, this, up in movie this all about. You know what I mean? You don't, you, you watch a scene like that, you're just like, wow, this is just so unusual and transfixing and exciting, and I maybe I don't know what's going on, but it's kind of great.
0: Ah, uh, and you know, the same part of my brain uh that is the part that makes me a critic, that is perpetually in the back of my head saying uh well how would i describe this to someone how would i analyze what part this has in the plot how does this fit the themes like what does this mean that part of the brain is distracted and is saying like where are they i thought they were on a privately owned island i guess they're not but what does that mean for the story because it changes everything like it's in the back of my head like nagging at me
1: well what else to say to that
0: she'd say let it go <laughs> should i say it or should i sing it scott
1: <laughs> uh, I think you gotta let it go. i think it's just you know Go with the flow. We well, should go into the unknown. Oh, right.
0: I mean, we were already in the unknown. That was the problem. Okay, that's true. <laughs> we'll let it go. We will just let it go. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll get a lot more violent about our gaslighting with the modern horror of the invisible man. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, have you said hi to your local flowers and birds lately? We recommend yelling at the pigeons every day for optimal heart <laughs> health.
2: You broke me, yeah
3: I'm broken. you still sorry and there's still no apology.